Welcome to the Maluli Asset Management Podcast. This is episode number 214, 214, the Dallas episode. I uh, I don't get the reference here, so you're, you're going to have to explain that one. I'm still getting flashbacks from my cold calling days at Lehman Brothers when, uh, epi- you know, episode 214 is the area code for Dallas, Texas. So 213 was Los Angeles, 212 was New York City, uh, 215, our next episode will be Philadelphia. The things that stick with you. I, I Yeah, so... It's like the Pythagorean theorem. Something like that. Yeah. Right. Brendan is here with me, and uh, we are going to run through some of the headlines of the day and put our own furious kind of spin on it. Uh, if you've caught some of these more recent episodes, we try and model this after PTI on ESPN, pardon the interruption. We hit a lot of headlines, and we move on to the next thing. So one of the things that I did right before we walked in here was in my notes, I had scribbled down, Italy sparks global fear of fresh Euro crisis. And I scribbled out Italy and I wrote Spain. Yeah, I mean, it'll be another Southern European country soon after them, right? I don't know who's going to be next. Portugal, we kind of lived through that a few years ago. We've already done the Greece thing. Uh, who's left? I don't know, but it just seems like like everyone's worried that, that they're going to leave the EU like like. Brexit, like same thing. Although, where are like, they? Where are they going to go? But like are Brexit, they going, are they going back to the lira? I don't know, but I I feel like it gets overblown in the short term because even if they even if they should decide to leave, I mean, how long is that going to take? Like like Britain is still talking about that, right? Like that's nothing's happening with that right now. That's two years ago, right? And and there was an initial reaction to that in terms of the market too, you know, and and afterwards, international and U.S. stock markets recovered just fine actually within like a week it wasn't it was like a blip on the radar like brexit it was a thing for like maybe a week it was like cabbage patch kids for investors that own some of these global type of funds i think you're going to find that some countries have a bigger impact than others i think italy and some of these big portfolios these international funds i mean they are it depends on what you're looking at, but if it's if it's like an all-world ex-US, it's probably in the realm of like 2%, right. which is, I'm pretty sure, like what they contribute to the uh, the EU global, uh, global like GDP, like yeah. numbers too. So, so basically they don't contribute a lot, but that, it's- Is that their economy can go to zero and it's not going to have that much of an impact. Right. It would just be like spillover effects, which, which is just like uncertainty, which investors apparently hate. But I just questioned, like, I, I really, I really hate that phrase because, like, what, what do we ever get other than uncertainty? Right. Like, there, there is literally never certainty, and maybe sometimes there's, it's seemingly more or less certainty than than others, but, and that's what scares people. But I just, I mean, you get paid to accept uncertainty in the market. If there were certainty, then there would be no returns. There would to be, be had. no market. So we should rename this podcast "Embrace the Uncertainty." Yeah. Because that's what makes a market. Right. I mean, I think we all like inherently know that too, but nobody nobody wants to know it. So the bingo word on Tuesday was contagion because everybody was talking about Italy and then obvi- obvious spillover effects that and we could sit here and speculate for days. My guess is as good as anybody else's. Probably, I mean, maybe not even as good as anybody else's. I don't, I don't know. 
Tom Maluli is an investment advisor representative with Maluli Asset Management. All opinions expressed by Tom and his podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Maluli Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Maluli Asset Management may maintain positions in securities discussed in this podcast. Same day this week that we saw the headlines about Italy, we also saw headlines about oil prices. And uh, I think the headline that I captured was political risks dwarf the dollar when it comes to oil. I, I chuckle when I read headlines like this uh, because you could easily reverse that and it would be just as plausible. You know, for oil prices, uh, the dollar is, you know, the dollar dwarfs uh, political risks. Just saying, just saying their point was that geopolitics have seemed to have more of an impact over the last six months or so on oil prices than the dollar. And they were saying that the correlation you normally see between uh, rising dollar and oil prices has not played out. I don't know. Because for the last few weeks, we've seen a rising dollar and rising oil prices right. going together. And so, like, this makes me think if, <laughs> if at the beginning of the year you, you had information uh, that over the next six months, the dollar was going to rise, and then you made bets based on past correlations, uh, you, you would have been wrong in this instance. Right. And I think the mistake isn't that this correlation is bunk. I mean, it probably plays out over a longer period of time. It's, I think it's a mistake to expect correlations to work over one day, week, month. I mean, we talk about these things, and I think most of the time they're meant on a, a longer-term basis than what we're analyzing here. But I think the mistake is trying to use a single variable to make binary in-out calls, whether it's the dollar or geopolitics or like a one a one-time signal like like as if you're flipping the light switch on and off to be in or out of oil i think that's a mistake yeah regardless of whether it's oil the dollar stocks bonds or literally anything else like binary calls are a bad way to invest as usual the black box firms continue to search for the magic on off switch uh when it comes to investing and they continue to be frustrated in finding one. Another headline that we picked up was, as global growth loses steam, U.S. investors find there's no place like home. Now, we can kind of tie those two stories together. So we've seen U.S. markets outperform international markets this year after two years of the opposite. With the change in price action comes the change in narrative. So last year's story of synchronized global growth is now in question because the stock prices don't confirm that narrative anymore or, or are showing signs of not confirming that narrative. Again, I mean, we just talked about like uncertainty pays. Right. And so I, I look at an article like this that was talking about GDP growth in the eurozone as a concern and geopolitics in emerging markets. And is there any correlation between GDP growth and stock prices moving forward? I don't think so, but we'd have to be really smart to know that when the economy's peaking, it's probably time to hit the exits. Right. And we can't know that beforehand. Right. I think, I think, you know, to, so to say that like, you know, economic indicators are slowing and that means that stock prices have to follow, I think is a mistake because stock prices, at least over the short term, are more based on expectations being exceeded or not. I mean, we've been in a in an, a market where we've seen 2% GDP growth or less for the last how many years? 
and stock market's done pretty well. It's done great. It's it's amazing to look at this and the other takeaway that I have when I read a story like this is, gee, wouldn't it be great if we knew that this year was the year to not be in international or better to be in small caps, but we don't. Right. So I think along that same vein, you take these different areas of the market that, that you are capable of being invested in and you decide you know, you, you think of best case and worst case and then determine what you want your exposure to be to those best and worst cases to combine and make a portfolio. Right. Like you, you got to come up with something that you can live with. You probably want it skewed towards stocks if you want growth because that's where the growth is going to come from. And then you can decide which areas of the globe. I mean, there's different different variables that impact all these different areas. So you want to make sure you have some exposure to all of them so you don't have to make these calls uh, ahead of time with your crystal ball saying international this year, U.S. the next year. Because no one can do that over time consistently. If if they could, then... But that's what everyone wants. Right, but you can't have that. So that kind of ties in with a post that our friend Michael Batnick, the article headline was Never Begin with the End in Mind. And he talks about how we anchor ourselves after making an investment to say, okay, you know, we're going to buy this stock and we'll see how it does from January 1st through whenever. Or I loved I loved the way that he put uh like as if and we do this with things other than stocks too and it's it's a funny way to just like laugh at ourselves like as if, you know, the the earth completing its revolution around the sun has any bearing on like the stock market or like anything else in our lives. Like why right. that? Yeah. Why why do we have to measure based off of that? I know I've written in the weekly email many times the market doesn't know what day it is. Right. It doesn't know what time of year it is. The stock doesn't know that you own it, isn't that? That's, that's right. an adage, right? I yep. forgot who said that. Yep. But you know, he he was talking about anchoring to these things and, and these different, you know, maybe you're anchoring to the high watermark of an investment or uh, your initial purchase price or what it's done since the beginning of this year. He suggested instead, which I think is an interesting uh, and useful way to look at a portfolio is if you had to build it over today from scratch, would, would this thing still be in there? Right. And, and why? And I think that if you had a good reason in the first place for owning something like if it's an ETF, like I wanted exposure to this factor or this area of the market or these countries or, or whatever it is, this sector of the market. And if that thesis still remains, then great, you leave it. And if your only thesis was was that like the price was ripping up and now it's not anymore, yeah. well, then you have your answer. And maybe you learn a, a little lesson through reflection too, that that shouldn't be the only reason that something gets into your portfolio. There has to be a better reason than that. There has to be. So circling back to that story in the journal about global growth losing steam, it's hard to say at the beginning of a year or really any point in time, international is going to do really well or small cap's going to do really well or bonds are going to do really We don't know. We just don't know from year to year. So it makes sense to have exposure to a lot of these areas. Right. And, and, and in the right amounts, that's going to put together a portfolio that hopefully does something along the lines of what you imagined it doing. Yeah. CNBC and in their infinite wisdom looking for a stock market quote went to Kevin Durant of the uh, Warriors. He actually came through, came through with something really 
pretty good. The craziest thing Kevin Durant has learned about investing is that investing is a lot of work. Right. So he's he's in Silicon Valley now uh, with the Warriors. So he he has like a small venture capital firm and he invests in some companies. I think I think Acorns was one of them. And he was just saying that seeing the process that goes into uh, VC, and I think this applies to any kind of investing, is, is that it's a lot of work and that you need to do your homework uh, or, or you're going to lose your shirt. It's an important lesson to just zoom out and take across fields. Uh, when, when you don't know a lot about somebody else's job, regardless of what industry or line of work they're in, I think almost always you would be surprised to see like how much work goes in behind the scenes, like how... How does, uh, you know, like the pizza shop that you go to every couple of weeks for dinner, like like what goes in behind the scenes there, all the prep and stuff earlier in the day before they're making pizzas and dinners for you or or what's going on, uh, I don't know, even like dry cleaners or a lawyer or a doctor. Like there's, we have these perceptions of how people operate in business and there's probably so much more that goes into it. Yeah. So, so just having a, an appreciation for other people and their work, I think. Is, I think I that's think really the, the big takeaway. Have is try to learn these things about people. Yeah, instead of just saying, you know, when you look at the bill, I got charged eleven hundred dollars for that. I didn't right. do anything. <laughs> I could have just picked up my own screwdriver and done that. Right. Yeah, that's that was actually a, a, a pretty good takeaway. So another story that we both talked about was even with mortgage rates up, buying instead of renting makes sense for many. We've gotten so many calls over the years. When uh, people have been uh, looking to refinance, and it's hilarious sometimes to hear these calls. Uh, going back when rates were even lower, they'd be like, "I can get three and a half percent from one guy, but this other mortgage guy said that uh, you know if, if I, I move my bank account, if over, I move a bank account, a I can rate. get three and a quarter." And I just laugh because historically, if your mortgage is five percent or less. You're doing great. A lot of the urgency that that people seem to have about the interest rate they're getting on their house is manufactured by uh, the people who are selling them the mortgage. And yeah. I understand that that's their job, and that's that's what they're incentivized to do. They need to sell mortgages and make them happen. Uh, that's that's their work. But people freak out because they get scared and think that like rates going up is going to mean this incredible burden to them. And I think that I think Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson were talking the other week about how obviously people pay attention to the rate they're getting on their mortgage. But like if you find your dream home, are you really you're not going to buy it if you can afford it because interest rates are like 25 basis points higher than they were a couple months ago? You're just going to buy it. You're going to buy the house. Right. Like a house is so much more important than the interest rate you're getting on your mortgage. Yeah. And I understand that over time, a, a difference in interest rate over a 30-year mortgage could add up, but I don't think that that's what people are making decisions based off of when they're deciding whether to, to buy a home or not. Buying a home is a purely emotional decision once you get past the price. And if you can can afford it uh, to buy a house, like I'm hoping that you're doing your homework to make sure that this is reasonable, and obviously you have to be qualified for a loan and stuff too, but if you can afford it, uh, there's literally no way that it's going to become unaffordable because of like a, a small change in interest rates and if it does then you like weren't ready to buy the house anyway yeah. if, if it if you know even if it's like one percent like if you were going to get three percent on your mortgage and you got four and that made it unaffordable for you then 
you're cutting it too close anyway, and I'm surprised you would even get qualified. I think you have to sit down with pencil and paper, which is something I'm surprised people don't do anymore. But sit down with paper and pencil and just figure out if my interest rate on my mortgage is, pick a number, 4.5%, my payment is going to be this. If my interest rate is 5%, my monthly payment is going to be that. And you don't even need to do the math anymore. You can type that actual quote that I just said into Google, and it will tell you what the number is. And there's hundreds of mortgage calculators available online. I think you'd be surprised when you actually look at the number over 20 or 30 year lifespan of a mortgage, you're, you may be talking about 75 bucks a month. Right. Yeah. And, and you could use uh, Excel has some really good amortization tables too they're like pre-made so you just like pop in the home value and a couple other variable like the interest rate you're going to get and it can right. show you right there the right. difference you want to do your homework and make that decision based on other factors i think a secondary factor might be your interest rate but i i don't think that that's gonna force you uh into buying or not buying so when we talk about rates we invariably wind up talking about bonds and there was a tweet this uh in the last week or so that came out, and somebody on Twitter wrote the annualized. I always, the hair on the back of my neck stands up when I see that word annualized because we're five months into a year. The annualized total return on the 10-year treasury note is now negative 10%. The worst since the 12.6% decline in 1931. You know what? I think reading that, Without any other information, I would feel really stupid if I had money in bonds. Yeah, I mean, if you don't know any better to not annualize five-month performance numbers, I mean, just just to like juxtapose that with something equally as foolish, uh, in like a what, like a two-week stretch from the end of January to the middle of February this year, the market went down ten percent. Annualize so, that. So yeah, we're gonna annualize that two-week negative 10% performance. What does that mean? I think we're down over, we owe the stock market money. <laughs> yeah. We're going to be down more than 100. And this is, you know, I, I'm going to get a little off, off topic here, but we get into these periods where the market sells off and it goes down 3% a day for a couple of days. And, you know, when the clients start calling and I understand their, their worries and their fears. I get it. But I, you have to inject a little bit of levity and you remind them, look, at this pace, the market will be at zero on July 14th. Right. Bastille Day. Well, and, and you don't get that perspective when you're tuned into the media because they're going to sensationalize what's going on. Yeah. And so you get to sensationalize it in the other direction. Yeah. And I think that, you know, when, when people are annualizing five-month performance, I think that I think it's very fair to, to to juxtapose that with annualized two-week performance on the S&P. Like, is that going to be terrifying, too? You want to sit them down, take their car keys away. Yeah. You know. like, Batnick, Batnick tweeted that chart out over the weekend and said flagrant foul, and I completely agree. Like, yeah. you can't do that. Come it's on. It's just wrong. I mean, you can do it. I just think it's a scare tactic. Yeah. Disney shares, this is something that we saw on CNBC, Disney shares dip after uh, franchise low debut for Star Wars prequel. I don't know what they did wrong in terms of marketing this movie, but I went to see it over the weekend and it was really good. Solo. I, I think it's a great opportunity to to plant another branch in that tree of Star Wars movies. 
It's another opportunity for marketing and merchandising. What's yeah. wrong with it? I mean, we obviously knew they were going to crank like one of these out a year when they bought the rights to the franchise. So like, yeah, there may be some kind of, you know, lethargy in terms of like, eh, another Star Wars. Like, I don't, I'm not in a rush to see it or something. But it's only been out for 40 years. <laughs> the the movie itself, I thought was entertaining. It was, I thought it was good. I liked it better than uh, the Last Jedi, which okay. was the one that came out last year. That's just my personal opinion. Uh, but also, like, you know, I I understand that this Star Wars franchise is like a big cog in the wheel of Disney in terms of earnings, but. It's, it's still just a piece of what they're doing. And, like, you know, maybe the stock dipped on the news that uh, not as many people went to see it over the, the weekend as they thought, you know, were going to. Um, maybe they but, stayed home and watched ESPN. But, like, yeah, but, like, long term, is that is that really, like, is that going to be an impact on them? I'm not sure. I mean, if, it, if it, this is the start of a secular trend of Star Wars movies tanking because people are just tired of them, then maybe. But, like, this could also just be an aberration or because it was like an offshoot, like people didn't care as much. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. Don't know. I, I can tell you that in May of 1977, Star Wars came out the original movie. And I remember that was the thing to do that weekend was to go stand online at uh, Park East Theater and Garden City Park and all the other places where it played. The film industry totally panned it. You should go back and read some of the reviews. Siskel and Ebert and uh, all of the film critics came out and said, this is a kiddie show. This will never go anywhere. It's hilarious to go back 40 years later after the Star Wars saga saga uh, has has come close to generating $5 billion in revenues. Just jumping back to something you said there. Uh, you said stand online, and I never knew that that was like a, a regional thing because I've always said it that way too. I guess that that I, I saw over the weekend that that's like a New York City kind of thing. Stand and, online, right? But no one else in the country says that. Apparently, other people say line. stand in line. Yeah, I and I get like that makes more sense when you think of the words themselves. But I've always said stand online, and I never questioned it until I saw something on like Twitter, yeah. something like that this weekend, and. Uh, yeah, just made me think of that because you were you were saying it that way too. It's that's uh, where it, I got it from. That must be it. That, that's got to be the source. Yeah. So thanks for listening to the uh, the Dallas episode. Before we turned the mics on, I was asking Brendan if he knew who shot Jr. He didn't. He no didn't idea. even know what I was talking about. So Jr. Smith. Uh, yeah. No. no, the guy from I Dream of Genie. Okay. So <laughs> we'll try and get a picture of Larry Hagman up there. Sounds good. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you on the next episode, which will be episode two fifteen. Philadelphia story.